sermon series uh, last week, the book of Daniel. How many people have read it all through so far already? One, two, three. Okay, that's enough. Um, This morning we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 2, verses uh, 24 to 35, and then, um, I'm just not tall enough. There we go. Uh, Daniel chapter 2, verses 24 and 35, and then we're going to skip to 44 to uh, 45 of Daniel chapter 2. So you might want to start finding that in your Bibles. If you haven't got a Bible, don't worry, I'll be projecting it on the screen later. So why Daniel? Why the book of Daniel? Well, for a start, Daniel has some great stories in it. A lot of you like good stories. It's creative. It's eye-catching. It grabs the attention of you arty types out there. It makes you think. But not only that, Daniel, the book of Daniel, is an excellent book for um, looking to how um, we live the life of a Christian practical Christian living. What does, a be- what does a believing life look like in an unbelieving world? How do I live a life devoted to God and all that he stands for when everything around me, the culture, everything around me, the media, is hostile to that God? And you see, Daniel helps us, the book of Daniel helps us with these questions and these dilemmas and these tensions. Uh, So, let's get into the text, but first, a little bit of background, um, a background to what we're going to be reading about this morning. So, Daniel 2 starts with a scary king, Nebuchadnezzar. He's the ruler of Babylon. Scary King Neb, as I'm going to call him for the rest of the uh, uh, morning. And he's asleep in his royal pajamas, and suddenly, he's woken up in the night by a dream. A nightmare, in fact. In fact, God revealing himself in a very colorful and ominous dream. And he's freaked out by it. He has a bit of a nervous breakdown, so much so that he summons his whole court, all his magicians and enchanters and sorcerers and astrologers, the wise men of the day of which Daniel is one of them, to not only tell him what his dream means or meant, because he's really worried about that, but also to tell him what the dream was in the first place, just to make sure that their interpretation was reliable, that he could believe it. And just to spice it all up a little, he says, if you get it right, you're going to get lots of bling and a pay rise and treasure. But if you get it wrong, off with your head. And as you can imagine, this gets the palace a little bit excited. Um, in fact, no one will even dare to have a go at scary King Neb. And do you know what? No one will have a dare to even have a guess at the dream. And do you know what? This makes scary King Neb flip. Until suddenly, in a, in a, uh, a burst of anger and rage, he goes, well, off with all of your heads then. And so we come to Daniel 2, verses 24 to 35, um, and 44 to 45. Then, we're going to read, Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, 
of which he was going to be one of them, Daniel. And he said to them, do not execute the wise men of Babylon, including me. Take me to the king and I will interpret the dream for him. Ariok took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream was all about. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in the dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. Your dream and the visions that passed through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come. And the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and and that you may understand what went through your mind. And then he talks about the dream. Your majesty looked and there before you stood a large, magnificent statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge, huge mountain and filled the whole earth. And then he goes on to explain the dream and Verse 44, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of, the, of, out, out of a mountain, but not by human hands, the rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. Let's pray first. Yes, Lord, I thank you for these ancient scriptures. I thank you that these ancient scriptures describe you in all your glory and all your magnificence. I thank you, Lord, that we worship the same God of Daniel. What an amazing privilege. What an amazing, mind-blowing thought that the God of the Old Testament is the same God that we worship and praise and honor this morning. So be with us by your spirit this morning. Teach us, unfold this vision before our eyes so that we can apply it in our lives, so that we can be godly believers in an unbelieving world. 
Be with us, I pray, this morning. Thank you. Amen. Uh, so where are we going this morning? Uh, three points, three things from the dream, which I want to unpack, really, a little bit deeper. So firstly, for f- three things. Firstly, why the two names? If you look at verse 6, the king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar. Why does Daniel, a man who totally believes in Yahweh, the God of the Bible, as the one true God, why does he have two names? Because Daniel, Daniel is a Hebrew name, which means Yahweh is my judge. Yahweh is my judge. But Belteshazzar means Bel will protect me. Who's Bel? Well, Bel, or Marduk, was the chief god of Babylon. So why the two names? Second, what was the dream? It's a bit weird, yeah? And thirdly, what's the rock that struck the statue? Those are the three things that we'll be talking about this morning. Why the two names, what's the dream, and what's the rock? So firstly, why the two names? In other words, what is Daniel, a devout Jewish man, who trusts and loves the God of the Bible, uh, what's he doing at the very top of Babylonian, non-believing, pagan, uh, God-hating government? Isn't that a bit dishonoring of God? Now, to answer this, I've got to do a bit of history, a bit of background. If you remember last week, uh, Paul Woodward told us that there, were, well, there was at least two times when King Neb invaded Jerusalem. The famous time happened in 587 BC where he totally burned down everything, including the Jewish temple. He killed many people and he took most of the surviving ones back to Babylon. But Paul also said, you might not have quite caught this uh, last week, that 10 years earlier in 597 BC, King Neb captured Jerusalem for the first time, and instead of blowing it up to smithereens then, he actually only took just a few thousand Israelites out of the whole nation um, of Israel back to Babylon, of which Daniel probably would have been one of them. Just a few thousand. But who were those few thousand? It wasn't a random choice. These few thousand were the professional class of Israel, the leaders of the armies, the government, the arts, education, scholars, the wise men. He took them and their families back to live in Babylon with him in his kingdom. Why? Because he wanted to Babylonianize them. Babylonianize them. Sounds painful, doesn't it? Yeah, in the, thesaur- in the thesaurus of Raj Saha. <laughs> Babylonianism. What do I mean? Well, he thought, if you want to take over a huge nation, all you had to do was take the leaders, the mover shakers of that nation, back to Babylon, and over the next few years, teach them to become Babylonians, just like them, worshipping their gods, eating their foods, learning and taking on their culture, Babylonianizing them. And then they would, they would do the work for you. They would keep the peace. Not a bad plan. 
And so when the professional class of Israel first got to Babylon, the first thing they did was settle out. This was to settle outside the city. And the prophets of the time, of which Hananiah was the top one, not the same Hananiah that we read last week, not Shadrach, um, Hananiah, the false prophet, was saying to the Israelites, you can read about it in Jeremiah 28 when you get home over lunch, Hananiah was saying, don't move into the city. That's not the place to be. We're believers. That's the pagan place. In fact, pray against it. And so Jeremiah, God's true prophet, one of the ones that was left behind in Jerusalem, well, he doesn't agree with Hananiah. So he writes to these Jews in exile a jaw-dropping letter about what he thinks God's advice is to them in this difficult situation. And you you can read that in Jeremiah 29. In fact, it's so important um, to our understanding of Daniel that we'll do that this morning. In fact, as you read the book of Daniel, it becomes clearer and clearer that that Jeremiah's prophetic letter, this statement, is actually the blueprint for Daniel's life. So what does Jeremiah 29.4 says? It says this. This is what the God of Israel says to all those I carried out into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. He says this, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace, the shalom, and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the God of Israel says. Do not let the the prophets or the diviners among you deceive you. Boom! This was an absolute bombshell. And it was an absolute bombshell for three reasons. Firstly, God tells them that their exile was part of his plan. It didn't feel like it. They wouldn't have liked what Jeremiah had to say. Verse 3 and 7 says, though, I have carried you there, says God. It's part of my plan that you, believers, have to live and work in a pagan city where anything goes, with people who do and say things and watch things and sing things that make your skin curdle. A place that celebrates sexual promiscuity, getting plastered, individual rights, selfishness, where people are completely okay about things like Harry Potter stories, acupuncture, Reiki, karate, Halloween, Santa Claus, the Tooth Fairy. What do you think of those? (laughs) That's part of my plan, God says, to put you in these situations. Why is it part of my plan? Because I want my truth out there amongst all that. I want my ways of thinking out there amongst all that. I want my worship out there, amongst all that. Not separate. Don't you see? It's part of my plan. I have carried you there, 
says God. Secondly, what Jeremiah wrote was shocking because he says, he says that he didn't want, he says that God doesn't want the people just to melt in. Yeah, he's carried you there, but don't just melt in with a crowd. See verse 6, it says, increase in number there, do not decrease. On the one hand, he says, keep your identity, don't just melt into the crowd, know how many of you there are that trust and love me. But also, he says in verse 5, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, seek the prosperity and the peace of the city. That's the deal. He says, I want you to move in, get deeply involved at all levels, culturally, socially, economically, faithfully, financially, raise your families and their families' families there. But I'm also not going to let you just melt in. In fact, I want you to work that balance out. There's always going to be tension. There's always, uh, there's always going to uh, be questions that you've got to work out. But I want you to work it out for my name's sake. Don't shy away. So how do you do this? How can you avoid just melting in? How can you avoid separating? Because that's what the early uh, ex- uh, exilers thought the two choices were. How do you avoid these two extremes? And Jeremiah tells us, and this is the third bombshell, and he tells us in verse 7, what does it say? It says, pray for the city. Seek the peace or the shalom and prosperity of the city because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And that's the key. It's all about motivation. You see, the Hebrew word shalom, peace, It's a very rich word. We just use it to mean no fighting or no war. But the Hebrew word shalom is much, much bigger. It means complete well-being, multidimensional, physical, financial, social, economic, spiritual, emotional blessing and fulfillment. And that's what God's shalom is all about. That's what you're to pray for in the place that God has put you in. That's what Jeremiah is saying. Jubilee, God is saying, I don't just want you to build little churches as a spiritual hideaway from all the people around you. I don't, want, I don't just want you to count the numbers and brag how big your church is compared to the one down the road. I don't just want you to run courses and entertain one another while ignoring the lost and dying people around us. I don't just want you to find faults, say, in the local Christian union or other, other Christian organization at your university, maybe, without getting deeply involved in it. I don't want you to get all high and mighty and tut at other people out there because you think you're better than they are. No. I want you to pray. I want you to get God's heart for the people around, doing your very best to spread your faith in deeds and words, loving people, being generous, helping the needy, breaking down racial divides, etc., etc., etc. Do you see why Jeremiah's letter is so radical, so important to them and to us? Now, most of you know that I'm a GP, and although my practice is a relatively small practice, we have about 5,000 patients. Charlotte's practice has about 25,000 patients. We're fairly small. 
Um, um, but over the years, we've made a point to deliberately to get involved in areas of medicine, if you like, where other people don't want to go to, don't want to work there. Say with drug addicts, the angry and violent, prostitutes, alcoholics, in prisons, with asylum seekers and refugees, amongst the severely mentally ill. Also, we've dri- deliberately over the years tried to be influencers on the front line of medicine, policy shaping, piloting new ideas and ways of thinking, training doctors and nurses to be. Yeah, it's more work. Yeah, it's more hassle. It's a headache sometimes. You get criticism. You get complaints. People have a go at you. You get it wrong. People swear at you sometimes. Nice. But I'd rather be where we are, at the very heart of it, rather than washing our hands of it. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is not just to brag about my practice, although I am doing that. (laughs) The point, Jubilee, is to underline that God's plan is to put all of us at the very center of Babylon, just like Daniel to be salt and light and make a difference in a godless, hopeless, desperate world. That's what Safe Families is about, that Pauline was talking about earlier. That's what Open Door is all about. That's what Sparklers is all about. That's what Kingdom Business, Jubilee Plus is all about. That's what hope is all about. That's why we're going to Tanzania. That's why we're going to Canada. That's why we're going to Turkey. That's what your community groups are all about. God is doing something among us, Jubilee, and he wants us to wake up to it. Love the city of man for the sake of the city of God. Live in both. Have two names. So that's my first point. Secondly, what's the meaning of the dream? It sounds a bit weird, doesn't it? Actually, it's quite simple. I've read a whole lot of very complicated stuff this week about this dream, but actually it's quite simple. In a nutshell, this dream is saying world history tells us consistently that human kingdoms don't last forever. Did you hear that? The human kingdoms of this world never last forever. That's not where we as believers put our hope and security. I'm not devaluing them, but that's not where we put our final hope and security. And you know what? You can apply this principle to yourself, both individually and to the world at large. You see, the statue, this enormous, dazzling, awesome, in appearance figure of King Neb, is how he wanted people to see him. All his life he wanted to build, we'll hear about this more next week, I think, all his life he wanted to build a huge, towering monument, the size of, I don't know, the Angel of the North so that people could look at him in awe and wonder. But in this dream, God comes to him and reminds him that whatever heights he rises to, down below, he's got feet of clay. And whatever he builds on those foundations will eventually wobble and fall down. And you know what? That's exactly what history tells us happened. Babylon was conquered by Persia, Persia was thrown down by Greece, and Greece eventually was crushed by the military might of Rome. 
Human kingdoms come and go. They don't last forever. Their foundations are wobbly. That's the big world. That's the big world at large application. But hey, let's make it personal by asking a question. Whose kingdom are you building? What's your motivation for the majority of things you do? When you look closely at the decisions you make, how you spend your money, uh, where and how you spend your time, the things you say, the dreams that wake you up at night, the thoughts that cause you anxiety and fear, whose kingdom are you really building? Where's your security? What are the, what are the foundations? What are the foundations on which all your striving and energy is built on. Do you believe what God is saying to Nebuchadnezzar? He's saying to all of us, if you build your life on anything but me, it will not last. It will come down eventually. If you build your life on popularity, you'll be knocked down by what people say about you. If you build your life on money, you'll be scared by your bank balance or the economy. If you build your life on getting asylum status, you will be worried about every letter that comes through the door. If you build your life around your children, you'll be devastated when they go. If you build your life around looks, then you'll be scared every time you look in the mirror. What are your foundations. Every other thing or person, however good or reliable they might seem, have feet of clay, they are fragile, they cannot carry the weight of your expectations. One day they're coming down. Jubilee, are you deliberately building your life on Jesus? Is prayer, faith, worship, community, reading the Bible, growing in you day by day, by day, are you systematically, strategically prioritizing these things in your life? If not, why not? Be joyfully serious and obedient about this. Do not be passive. So point one, be deeply engaged in the place that God has placed you. Pray for it, love it, serve it. Don't stay out, but don't just melt in either. Be distinct. Increase in number where you are. Also, point two, keep, keep a heart check on what's motivating you. Whose kingdom are you building? What are your foundations? Get it right. Keep it right. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And finally, point three, what's the rock? What's the rock, the little rock that strikes the huge statue and smashes it to smithereens. What is it? The rock that becomes a huge mountain, as we've read, that fills the whole earth. The rock jubilee is the revelation to Nebuchadnezzar of the vastness and power of the kingdom of God. That's what it is. It was great to hear all those songs this morning about the king and his kingdom and his reign. 
Verse 44 says this, In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. But it, set, but it itself will endure forever. So finally, to end, I'm just going to spend a few minutes on the kingdom of God. So what is it? What is the kingdom of God? Any thoughts? Where God lives? Where God rules? Jesus' favorite subject, apart from money. But simply, <laughs> that's right, that's right, Paul. Put simply, the kingdom of God is God's will being declared in all of his creation. You see, the kingdom of God is the result of God's mission to rescue and renew this sin-spoiled world. The kingdom of God is all about Jesus, our king, establishing his rule and reign over everything. And as Jesus' cherished ones, you and me, who trust in him, we gladly, joyfully, excitedly enter it, live under it, and are governed by it. That's the kingdom of God. And this passage says three very important things about the kingdom of God. Firstly, the kingdom of God, it's a God thing. That's a clue. It's supernatural. The rock was not cut out by human hands, verse 34. It's not a product of human thinking and cleverness. Rather, it's the outcome of supernatural, divine action. The Apostle Paul, as he went round encouraging churches and planting churches, was emphatic that the kingdom of God was a supernatural, awesome thing. He says in Romans 15, I'll not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power, the power of signs and wonders through the power of the Spirit of God. When you read the Gospels, it's crystal clear that Jesus' ministry was marked by the miraculous. Jesus, fully man, moved in the supernatural regularly by the power of God, the Holy Spirit. In fact, people at first were often attracted to Jesus by what he did rather than what he said. Through healing the sick, through telling the woman at the well things that she could only know, that only she could know, through prophecy, through defeating demonic holes on people, through feeding 5,000 with a few bread and fish, through raising the dead, through his resurrection, through changing to water into wine at a wedding party. I like that one. Through the miraculous, supernatural power of God, Jesus focused people's minds on what he had to say. His joy-bringing gospel message. And you know what? He tells us to do likewise. And in fact, this morning, Pauline has brought exactly that. 
He tells us to do likewise through Jesus' death and resurrection. You know what? We have, we have access to the realm of life that Jesus lived in. Through the shedding of Jesus' blood on the cross, it becomes possible for everyone who believes on his name to do as he did. You see, the anointing of the Holy Spirit is God covering. That's what anointing means, smearing like an ointment. The anointing of the Holy Spirit is God covering us with his power-filled presence. And do you know what? This anointing equips us, as it did Jesus, to bring our friends and neighbors and family and colleagues at work, the poor, the despised, the marginalized, into a radical eye-opening encounter with God. And that is the greatest gift to humanity. Do you believe we don't worship supernatural signs? We don't worship the signs themselves. I've seen, like, I've seen people like that. I'm sure you have. We follow them because they're signs, because they lead us deeper and deeper into God's presence. They ignite in us a passion for worship. And do you believe that's the challenge to us as a church? On a daily basis, in the daily things of life, do you seek and pray for the miraculous intervention of God first? Or do you try and sort it out practically? Do you, go, do you go public with it? Or do you keep it locked in the confines of a safe little room? Or Sunday mornings? Or your community group? Does the miraculous nature of God embarrass you amongst your friends? If so, why? It's one of our wells. It's where increasingly God is taking us. The kingdom of God is supernatural. Let's step out in it. Secondly, the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. See what it says? The rock, see what it says in this uh, dream? The rock is actually the least valuable substance in the dream. It's the weakest, the least precious thing. You see, the Jewish people um, throughout history were expecting the kingdom of God to come in strength, in military power and force and might. A kind of, a divine kind of Rambo was meant to come on the scene. But then Jesus turns up, a poor man, a seemingly nobody, and says, hey, now that I'm here, the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, you can imagine what they were thinking. Where? And who are you? But to Jesus, but to that, Jesus says, do not miss out on the kingdom of God just because it doesn't look exactly like what you were expecting, what you were expecting. That's what he was telling the religious leaders of the day. In fact, it's not going to look like what you're expecting. Get used to it. Superficially, it's going to look weak. Some of you are not going to be impressed. In fact, some of you are going to get very, very, very upset about it. Why? I'll tell you why. Because my kingdom, Jesus says, is an upside-down kingdom. You see, Jesus tells them, you see, Jesus tells the people of the day, the enemies that I will crush are not going to be the Roman soldiers. No. They're going to be more powerful and soul-destroying than them. 
No, for you, I'm going to battle against sickness, against Satan, against demonic powers, against sin, and even death. I'm going to turn your kingdom, um, I'm going to turn your kingdom thinking around a little bit about who, who you think's in and who you think's out of the kingdom of God. Sons who you say they'll obey, sons who say they'll obey but then don't, like the good Jews, will lose out. And sons who say they won't obey but then eventually do, like sinners, will be in. People who turn up at the vineyard late, like the Gentiles, will get the same privileges as those who've been there all day, like the Jews. My banquet will be full of people who you would never have expected to be there. Outcasts, lepers, the deaf, the blind, the lame, the demonized, healed and fully restored. The worst sinners, the unclean, the lowest of the low, the tax collectors, sexually immoral women will be welcomed and invited to dinner with me, Jesus. The Samaritans, the Romans, the ones who you despise, they'll be there if they trust me too. The rich will be poor, the poor will be rich, the first will be last, the last will be first. And on and on and on he went. My kingdom was not what you were expecting. Jubilee, is that how you see it? Is that what your kingdom lifestyle is increasingly looking like? Who do you spend most of your time with? Who do you open your home to? Do you get excited about an Acts 2.42 community? Or does it scare you? All the, Acts 2.43, all the, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give, anyone, to, give to anyone who they had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people, of all the people. Challenging, very challenging. The kingdom of God is supernatural. The kingdom of God is totally upside down. And finally, the kingdom of God is, the, is our future hope. It's the hope of the world. <clears throat> Jubilee, this great, Jubilee, this is the great hope we have. Though the world looks like Babylon, though everything doesn't seem like it's going to plan, though insults and even persecution comes your way, to some of you particularly, Though life can seem unfair and out of control, you can know, you can have absolute confidence that God's overarching plan is trustworthy and true and progressing just the way he wants and expects it to. Really? Do you believe there is a day that is coming where Jesus will return and make a new heaven and a new earth and where God will restore his kingdom rule fully? No more sickness, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more death. Perfect, perfect peace. Shalom, shalom. In fact, the Bible describes that day as the biggest wedding you'll ever see. Andrew Wilson, a Bible teacher in Down South, writes, and get this, by the way, all you are getting married married soon, because... 
That's what your weddings and future marriages are pointing to. No pressure. Andrew Wilson writes, Jesus is coming back for a great wedding. It will be a wedding that makes ours look half-baked in comparison, where the feast will never stop, where the wine will never run out, and the dancing will never end. You and I, if we're part of the church of God, will be there, but not as guests, not even an usher, but as the bride herself, the one who cuts the cake, the one who appears in all the photos. So invite your friends to come along. Jubilee, knowing this magnificent certainty strengthens us to press on, move forward in the great adventure that God has ahead. A truly great future. This is our perfect hope. Are you consumed by the truth of God's glorious future? Or or are you fretting about the here and now? Are you like Abraham, looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God? Do you, like the Apostle Paul, consider all your present sufferings as not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in the last days, Romans 8? Get this kingdom perspective into your soul, Jubilee. Leaders in Jubilee, get this model of a kingdom, get this reality into your souls as well and model it to others you serve. Because if you do not, because if you, because if you do, nothing, nothing will break you or them. To end, C.S. Lewis, the writer of the Narnian stories, um, puts this brilliantly on the last page of the final book that he wrote in the Chronicles of Narnia series called The Last Battle. This is probably one of my favorite quotes ever, apart from the Bible. It says this, but for them, and he's talking about all the characters of the book at the end of the story, at the end of this great adventure, spanning numerous books, he says, but for them, this was only the beginning of, a real st- of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and ever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Jubilee, let's finish. I'm going to finish there. Let's stand if the band can come out. That's great. That would be great. Um, As I was